0: Welcome to The First Incision, a podcast from the Christian Medical Fellowship, where we explore topics at the interface of faith and healthcare that affect our Christian lives in today's world. I'm your host, the Christian Medical Fellowship's Head of Communications, Steve Fouch. Now, this is the last episode of our current season of First Incision, and so we thought it would be good to revisit some of the diverse range of issues that we've looked at since we began our sixth season back in April. Over the last four months we have looked at everything from God's concerns for our everyday lives and how we can have a positive impact on the lives of our colleagues and patients through God's work in and through us. We have considered the way the UK treats refugees and asylum seekers and how as Christian health professionals we can stand for godly values and justice even when the law and society are going in the opposite direction. We have heard about parish nursing as an ancient form of Christian ministry that's now being restored to the church and about vaccines and vaccine hesitancy. and perhaps above all we've learnt a bit about how we can find confidence in a God who is with us through all the storms and the chaos that we face, especially in a time of global crisis such as we find ourselves in today. So I hope you enjoy listening to some tastes of these discussions and talks from the last four months and do go back and revisit these episodes in your podcast feed or on our Buzzsprout site. At our national conference in April, Mark Green of the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity spoke to us about whole life discipleship as health professionals. In this clip, he reminds us that God not only speaks, but he speaks into the lives of people that we work with and care for day to day.
1: In the Bible, we see various forms of prophecy. We see God sending people to speak to his own people, Samuel to Saul, Nathan to David, Elijah to Ahab we see prophecy that relates to grander things, to the whole sweep of history, the fate of nations, the coming of the Messiah. And in some streams of the contemporary church, prophecy is associated with particular people having particular words from God for people in church or in home groups, or indeed for colleagues at work. At root, prophecy is simply speaking truth from God. That truth may come to us in obviously supernatural ways. An angel, as here, a dream, an audible voice, or a deep inner conviction that you just know is from God. Or it may be impressed on us by God's supernatural spirit, working through our reading and and reflecting on God's supernaturally inspired Bible. Here the word comes to Paul in a clearly non-religious context. Not in a cell group or a, ch- or a church, but it's out in the world. And interestingly, it's essentially first and foremost for the benefit of non believers. Paul uh, does make his view clear, but notice that Luke doesn't say that he uses any overtly religious language to do so. At this stage, uh, Julius, the pilot, the soldiers, the crew obviously know that Paul is a follower of the way, that is, a Christian. He's under arrest for it. Paul teaches us that we don't always need to say God says. So God gives Paul wisdom from above ultimately for the benefit of the whole crew. After all God does not need a boat to get Paul to Rome. He can just whistle up a whale from the Atlantic, he's done it before, and dump Paul on an Italian beach at the mouth of the Tiber. But God is concerned for Paul's companions And God offers information that will limit the commercial impact on the owner. Yes, you may lose your ship if you stay, but you will not lose the tackle, the cargo, or the people. Well, does God care about the physical and material well-being of the people you serve and their economic flourishing? Well, yes, he does. And it's always been so.
0: Dr. Dave Carter set up the organisation Heaven in Healthcare a few years ago to encourage Christians to be Jesus' hands and feet and mouth in healthcare. Here he explains a bit of what that means in practice.
2: I think there's a lot of fear um, attached to the the practice of faith in the medical world and people are are concerned about it. So how do you do that in a loving way, in a wise way, the sound mind, but also in a powerful way? And that that would summarise Heaven in Healthcare to some degree. And it's open to all, all. who work in healthcare. So it's not not just healthcare professionals, but um, it could be you know, a porter in a hospital. Uh, it could be a GP receptionist. It could be a consultant surgeon. It can be. We've got one like lady. A lady who cuts people's hair in residential care homes, and worships, oh, wow. worships and sings and prays over them while she's cutting their hair. And she's got extraordinary stories of break, people breaking out of dementia. Wow. It's, it's phenomenal. And so that's that heaven in healthcare. There is the delivery of the resources of heaven through any Christian into yeah. any area of healthcare, expecting that God will do something, that he'll break through powerfully, um, and doing it in a way that is, is loving and wise.
1: Yeah. Oh, thanks, Pete. That's a, that's a great summary. And I wonder if uh, you, know, you can just give us a bit more on what's been going on in the last year. What sort of things have you been uh, involved in, uh, both? yourself personally and as heaven in healthcare and maybe just a couple of examples, some of the stories that you're seeing of of, of what's been happening and the encouragements you've you've faced.
2: Yeah, I think well obviously the last year has been challenging to say the least. <laughs> so so we've right. been working at this for a, a number of years um and heaven in healthcare has grown um out of uh well my reality but what i started to find was other people gathering towards us. There was a what I call a, a common dream that people found. And I think when um, when people start in, in, in the medical world, whether it's doctors, nurses, physios, they usually, if they're Christians, they've got a dream that their Christianity is going to make a difference. And somehow that, that, that dream can get squashed out of them because of various oppressive things that come upon it. And I've, well, I've, I was talking to a physio recently, a Christian physio, two years qualified, but said, and she said, well, I had that dream when I went to physio, but I lost it. So I said, oh, yeah. let's get it back. So, so what, when we entered into last year we thought oh my goodness actually there's something very very important here and we've actually really stepped up our game of of supporting and enabling christians in the health world to not just be surviving covid but actually creating peace and joy and in that place and seeing miracles happen so we have got stories of of, of miracles of, of breakthroughs of you know people with severe covid actually being healed of that coming out of that but we've also got stories of just support we've seen people die um and you know so it's been, we've really, really ramped up our, our, our resource base to support all the workers there, which is actually what we're talking about is we just recently released, released a seven-part video series, which they can find on uh, anybody can find on our Heavenly Healthcare YouTube channel. Um, mm-hmm. And it's all designed to try and help people understand God's dream for healthcare and how they can be part of it. Um, mm-hmm. We're working very closely now with um, the NHS in various places. Um, so. I think I've said it before, our healing centre that we have here at Eastgate, which is like a prayer prayer place for, for healing, um, uh, was um, accepted as, as a sort of a, a complementary uh, resource alongside the, the health services by 100 local GPs. Well, we had to swap that online because that was an in-person thing. So we've actually had that and we've had um, people calling in from their hospital beds into that. Uh, Eastgate took a, a special offering. Um, the church took a special offering for healthcare workers. Um, I asked the church to make it the biggest e- ever offering because this is the biggest ever challenge we've faced, I think, in the world. Um, yeah. And we've got eighty thousand pounds, which we're right. now u- now using, uh, giving it away to the, the, the hospitals around us and the, the health visitors. And they're engaging with us and they're asking us to help them support their staff. Uh, they want to use our building as their training facility. So so a lot of stuff's happened.
0: In May, I had the privilege of talking to two parish nurses about their ministry. Here, Kath talks to us about how God works unexpectedly through her nursing. Wow. Isn't it interesting how God can... Take you somewhere where you're not expecting to go by the most bizarre of circumstances. Absolutely,
3: absolutely, (laughs) fantastic. It happens many times clinically as well, where you just, you know, I'll have an idea of what I'm doing with my diary is booked, and then you know you suddenly feel you need to go and visit somebody, and you're like, but God, I was there two days ago, or God, I have to book an appointment with them because you know it's it's Lord somebody or Lady somebody, so you tend to book appointment. Mm. You're like, okay. I'll go and you know I've had situations where you know they've been on the floor um, and you found them and they're like you know if you hadn't have come in um, Kath would have been here till the cleaner came later on in the evening or mm. whatever and you just like you know you can then meet with them and sort of explain them well actually I came because God told me to and you know it, it, it can devolve a lot of conversations um, where you know if you trust and you, you, you actually believe that God will challenge you and tell you to, to change your plans if necessary, then you can. And, you know, it, it supports the people that need it.
0: There are many ways that our relationship with God and our reading of the Bible shapes our approach to healthcare. And in this clip, Mark Pickering and Melody Redmond share about how faith shapes our values and our conscience. OK, so we, we've used the word conscience quite a bit here. What, what do we mean by Conscience.
4: Well, I think I would say it's just your internal sense of right and wrong, because uh, if we don't have that internal sense, then then if our sense of right and wrong is purely going from what the rules say, then, you know, if the rules are bad, we will act badly. You know, the classic example, you know, Nazis, uh, people in Nazi Germany were following the rules and did some awful things. And it was only later that they thought, goodness, what what were we thinking? and many people in society today do what we as christians would think are crazy because that's what the rules say they can do whether it's the societal rules or the actual laws and so to be um to be a person of of real integrity i think we've got to have a strong sense within us of what is right and what is wrong so that we can act according to that and that's very different from a sense of what i want myself you know we, we all we've all got that selfish driver to to look after number one which we can hopefully keep a, a lid on most of the time but that that sort of external sense of how should I be acting in this world and if someone asks me to do something I think no no it's not just that I'm tired and I don't want to do that it's actually wrong to do that that's where where I would say conscience comes in
0: is, is there a distinctively Christian perspective on that Though I mean is this sense of right and wrong universal or do you think that's a particular there's a particular Christian dimension to that
5: I think that's really interesting, we all have worldviews and we all have beliefs and values that influence our decisions and actually the GMC guidance on this area is really clear and it says, um, you know, doctors and patients have beliefs and values that affect their practice and that means regardless of what religion you might follow or what political beliefs you might have or what beliefs about culture or background you might have, we all have these different um, beliefs and values that influence how we might see the world around us and how we might want to practice within healthcare. And as a Christian, certainly my worldview is shaped by um, the worldview presented by the Bible and that Jesus models. And so certainly that definitely influences my medical practice. And for me, it's really important that I can match that up, the values that I have, Um, day-to-day must match up with what I'm allowed to do or allowed to be prevented from doing when I'm at work.
0: So just as the Bible and our faith shape our conscience and our values so they shape our understanding of what is right and wrong of justice and injustice. So in this next clip Dr Becky McFarlane explains some of the challenges that she finds in caring for refugees and asylum seekers from culture and language issues to the impact of UK domestic health policy towards people with insecure immigration status. So what are the big challenges that are, are facing us in terms of, particularly in terms of providing health care and support for um, for those who are asylum seekers, both those still seeking asylum and those who may have had their claim for asylum turned down? What, what, are, the, what are the challenges that are, are we're facing at the moment?
5: Okay, so I think
6: on a a sort of practical note, there are ongoing challenges in terms of working with a more vulnerable group. Um, I mean, just from my experience as a GP and even in the clinic where I work just now, I quite regularly meet um, asylum seekers. They come here not understanding the system, obviously. You know, the healthcare systems work very differently all around the world. Most of them don't work by appointments. Uh, Most of them you just turn up at a hospital and you get seen if you stand long enough in the queue or even wait overnight to be seen. So, some of the kind of cultural aspects like that people have to get used to. There's obviously the issue of language um, and understanding each other again on a cultural level as well. So, mm. the issue of interpreters increasingly, healthcare workers are encouraged to use phone interpreting, not face to face interpreting by their trust or whatever. That can work well. Sometimes it doesn't work as well as face-to-face, though, because you're missing out some of that body language and everything. Mm. Um, Mm. And there's also obviously the kind of health issues that people have come with. So they come without any records. You have to go from scratch. They have to know what, what their background is, as it were. The medications that they've been on may be different to the ones that we have in the UK or different names anyway for them. So some of these practical things, even immunizations, making sure people are up to date with those. But there's there's healthcare staff around the UK who've become very experienced in this now, actually. And there's some really excellent practice going on in many different clinics and, and GP practices across the country and in secondary care as well. I think on a on a kind of more policy note though, there it is really concerning how um successive governments have sought to restrict Asylum seekers lives in different ways, and that includes access to health care. This is mainly a problem at the moment in in NHS England. Um, It's not so much of an issue in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland because their devolved governments have responsibility for health and have made different decisions. So so as someone, for example, who's been refused asylum um, in Scotland they have the right as in Wales and Northern Ireland as well to full free healthcare whereas in NHS England they've pursued a policy of restricting that so basically in 2015 um NHS England introduced charges for NHS services for those with no leave to remain in the UK which you might call insecure immigration status so this affects those who've been refused asylum but also those who've come and have maybe not not just applied for long-term status they've kind of forgotten or they don't know how to do it they've got caught up with their lives or they don't want to present themselves to immigration authorities for whatever reason or those who've come say on a student or working visa and the visa's expired so all these people are those with in- insecure immigration status and this and these nhs charges have generally affected secondary care or generally affect secondary care including maternity care and some community services mm. um, but the implication to the asylum seekers themselves and other immigrants is that they don't understand the difference between primary care and secondary care so if they hear that they're going to be charged for health care they're also going to think well oh, actually I have no access to a GP either and the other thing that affected that was the sharing of data between NHS digital and the home office which should no longer no sorry no longer be happening now but it was it introduced a sense of Fear for asylum seekers because it wasn't clinical information that was being shared but it was contact information mm. so that the Home Office could go to NHS Digital and ask for somebody's contact details so they could find them basically. And, and, because and I mean, there was a, against that. you come from sorry, a country from
0: like, where you're, um, being, being, you're facing persecution from the state in particular, that's going to be a real fear, isn't it?
6: Absolutely. And there was actually major protests against that, even from the GMC. You know, there was real concerns about that, which I think is why the government eventually backed down. But of course, again, immigrants don't know that that's been changed. So they still think that their data will be shared. And I think all these things have just introduced a sort of sense of, of barriers. Um, so that that doctors and, and Nurses and immigrate, sorry, administrative staff as well. You know, don't always know what people are entitled to, and there's a sort of sense of does this person have the right to be here? Don't they, mm-hmm. in terms of being in 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 our clinic, in our hospital? And and it does have a direct impact on on people's health. I mean, there was a a confidential inquiry into maternal and child health called Why Mothers Die in 2004 by the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. And it found that Black African women, especially including asylum seekers and newly arrived refugees, had a mortality rate rate seven times higher than white women and had major problems in accessing maternal health care. And this was before the introduction of charges, which for Women having maternity care in England can result in them being charged £7,000 minimum for their maternity care. They, they have to be given it, but there's always that fear of them being charged. And so some will fail to ac- access that care until the last minute.
0: One of the big stories of 2021 has been the advent of COVID vaccines. And while there has been some kickback from a minority of the population against vaccination and anxiety amongst many others about the pace of the development and possible risks. In this conversation with uh, Annika Wilder-Smith and Lawrence Crutchlow, we reveal that this is perhaps something not that new or unexpected.
6: So vaccine hesitancy um, itself is defined by the WHO Strategic Advisor Group of Experts as a delay in acceptance or refusal of vaccination despite availability of vaccination services. So important to this um, definition is that we can't look at it as a binary decision to vaccinate or not to vaccinate, but rather a continual scale of hesitancy. And so that incorporates selective refusal to certain vaccines or choosing to delay vaccination or accepting vaccination with or without doubts. Um, So yeah, a vaccine hesitancy can be seen as a massive scale, uh, rather than just a a yes or no.
0: So a spectrum rather than, as you say, a binary uh, alteration. Lawrence, you've As you said, you've written a CMF file on this. It it doesn't turn out to be that new an idea, does it?
7: Uh, No, not at all. I think we definitely see that hesitancy where I work. We perhaps do see a bit of what people used to call anti-vax. I suppose I would characterise that as the cut off on a parent with children who really doesn't want to touch any vaccines at all often quite difficult to have much discussion with, often actually a little bit disengaged from the healthcare system more generally. And I think it's quite a different thing. We sometimes lump the two together. But this is not new at all, Steve. Um, We look back to Edward Jenner. Many of you will have heard of him, who was the uh, doctor who initially uh, published research about vaccination. This is going back right to the end of the 18th century even at that point it took about 40 years for the previous practice which was something called variolation in crude terms infecting somebody with the disease mildly and hoping that they wouldn't get it more seriously it was about 40 years before that stopped eventually by statute. People were hesitant at the beginning, like I guess they are about any newer technology. And we see after that in the the UK, a move to make vaccination compulsory against smallpox for many, many years. When you look into that, there's a great deal of concern in as much as we can find that from the Victorian era. And interestingly, you come to the end of the 19th, beginning of 20th century, the law changes to take away that compulsion uh, in a couple of stages. So I don't think any of this vaccine hesitancy is particularly new, although we do perhaps have rather uh, wider ranging tools to share that hesitancy with one another. Uh, We didn't have Twitter in the Victorian era, of course.
0: So... When we stand back and look at everything that is going on in the world at the moment, we do need to get a divine perspective. It's very easy to see the problems and the crises, the issues and the challenges, and not the God who stands above it all and behind it all. So, before we sign off, and until the podcast returns in September, let me leave you with these wise words from Florence Mwindi.
8: Who would have imagined, or even began to think, that we would be in such a time? How could we even have prepared uh, or made way so that we may survive differently in the time and the season that we have found ourselves in over the last over the last 12 months or even more? Who would have imagined or even described? Some of the things that we have seen, experienced, even had on the media, um, it's just been so different, so uncertain, all over the world, in every sector, including the church. The reality is we have been in a disaster response situation that is sustained, everywhere. For everyone, old and young students and professionals, um, everywhere, life has indeed dealt the unexpected. As Christians, as health workers, what should be our perspective and what should be our response at this time? I want to assure you All things, all things work together for good, and even in this, we can be able to say with confidence, nothing will separate us from his love. His will is pleasing, and it's perfect.